What is good? I'm back in Bristol for a few hours. Was in uh, Vermont for a little bit. Shout out to John Becker, the best college basketball coach outside of the Power Five. Go ahead and do that. Is it even the Power Five? I lose track. Big East, who's in it? Um, Big win against Harvard. Harvard was up. They had this kid dropped 17, just couldn't miss from outside. And then Lamb went for 37 for UVM. Really good game. In attendance. Didn't hang out with anybody afterwards. What's big UVM on? hoops guy. Big, big UVM hoops guy. It's a great scene up there. Small. And then, you know, what's funny is like we got to our seats and they're just gymnasium seats and they're still a sign, but it's a little crammed and it was showing up right. It was about to tip. So people were there early and ready to go. And the game wasn't tipping yet. There's dance team was out there. I also an interesting stat from my years at UVM. Didn't know one cheerleader, no one on the dance team. And a lot of us were like, okay, how is it possible that no one ever, ever met anyone or a buddy didn't date somebody from the dance team yeah, that's, cheerleader? That seems odd. I don't Yeah. One guy dated a gymnast once and we all freaked. We're like, oh, wait, like that's such an untapped resource. Like what? Well, no football team, right? You guys have a football no team? No football team. So I, I, I also went I, to a school with no right. football team and the it was just different. I feel like if you're a cheerleader at a football school, like you know who they are, right? Yeah. They're kind of a big deal. Yeah. At schools like ours, UVM, Quinnipiac, it's like, all right, you know, you're doing basketball games. You know, you might be doing a, I don't know, soccer game somewhere. Who knows? So it's not that big of a deal. You put Quinnipiac in the same class as UVM? Yeah. I mean, they play each other like all the time. Yeah. All right. I just, school, how many, how many people went to your school? Uh, it's, well, it's way bigger now. It's probably like 8,000 or so. Wow. That's like almost the exact same size. School. Yeah. That's a lot bigger than I thought. Don't disrespect the queue. I guess I just didn't really, you know, public Ivy, Vermont. So as I go to my seats, um, and we're, we're just trying to get into the seats. Somebody's sitting in our seats. It's fairly obvious. They saw the open seats. And then, uh, this woman just started waving her hands, like parting the sea, being like, we get out of the way, move it, make a decision. Really old too. And it was, it was infuriating. Like everybody that saw it happen was like, that was so incredibly rude. The game hasn't even tapped or tipped. Tipped is what I should say. Okay. Here's the plan. Adnan Verk, 45 minutes. We do some on Harold Baines, surprisingly enough. A little baseball for you. A little hot stove. Huh? I used to love the hot stove. Couldn't get enough. I asked, why is it called hot stove? Do we know? Am I missing something? You're sitting around the hot stove. Just <laughs> I don't understand. I've asked several people here over the course of the last few weeks, and nobody has an answer for me. Just sitting around. I think it's probably because it'd be... All right. Let's, let's find it. Let's do this. Let's get research on it now. Go to... Hot stove. Yeah, hot stove origin. Hot stove league is the off-season. The phrase does not denote an actual league. Oh, that's good to know. Um, but instead calls up images of fans gathering around a hot stove. There you go, cold winter months. So it goes back to the Puritan days of just ye old New Englanders sitting around. Because basically every baseball team was up there. Providence, New Bedford had a team. I don't even know. I'm just making up stuff at this point. But yeah, that's that's kind of what I thought. It, the Northeast sitting around, but Phoenix feels left out. Maybe they should call it the Cool Breeze League. They don't need a hot stove. No, they don't. Down not there. Phoenix. Not in Phoenix. So um, the plan is Adnan, hot stove, and then just life updates and all that stuff. I think he's going to end up interviewing me for most of it. And then something I'm really excited about, it's my favorite book of the year, and we're going to give away five copies, maybe four, because Saruti may keep one. Uh, Jonathan Green, incredible author, all sorts of awards, investigative dude, 
puts himself out there. The book is Sex, Money, Murder. If you're from the Bronx, if you're from a part of the Bronx called Soundview, you know about this story. Uh, late 80s, early 90s, the crack epidemic, epidemic, the rise of this gang. Um, and it's, it's in a year where I was lucky enough to read a lot of books is the way the schedule worked out. It's my favorite book. It was just awesome. There's this detective from the Bronx, uh, John O'Malley, who I got to talk to, and I've talked to the other a few times. So we're going to do like 20 minutes with him. So that's the plan. Adnan and then the author, Jonathan Green, Sex Money Murder. I do want to do a couple minutes on a few, like the cold weather as the only reason why these offensive teams are slowing down. I'm not buying that yet. Goff was terrible against the Bears. Is it just because of the cold weather and they completely shut down Gurley? And that was actually ended up being one of Goff's worst games when it's very clear he's a really good quarterback. Okay. So like, I don't, I don't think this is now, Oh, like if you were waiting around for Goff to try to do the, Oh, I knew he wasn't any good. I, I don't really think that that helps you in the Bears thing unless he just falls apart here. The Bears defense may be even better than I think, which is incredible because we all think it's one of the best defenses. All those Seattle's looked awesome on Monday night, but it wasn't cold in Dallas when they shut down the Saints. So I don't even know what the conclusion on this is yet, Saruti, but if I were doing radio, I'd go for two months, three months, really. This is the conversation. This new NFL, try to keep up. Maybe you get a turnover here and there. It felt like the old 989 game day video game where if you deferred and you scored at the end of the first half and then you get the ball to start the second, you beat your roommate in college because that's the only way you're going to win the game because everyone scored a million times. The stiff arm was just too good. Video game reference, and then Madden took back over. But now I look at that Saints-Dallas game. I don't really look. The Chiefs were a couple plays from losing to the Ravens that are really all defense and getting some things going with Lamar looking different. And he's been all right. Um, but that's terrific as a rookie. It'd be weird. I don't know. Baker's had such, he's like the stock market right now, which again, I can't understand these people that write these financial pieces that are like in the middle of the day, the, the Dow being absolutely torn apart on Monday, fears of Brexit. Blah, blah, blah. And then there's this total recovery. It's up for the day. The futures on Tuesday were up. Dow looks great to capitalize on concerns calming about Brexit. Like you wrote the complete opposite headline 12 hours ago. All right. Sorry. Little finance rant there. Uh, I don't, I don't have the conclusion yet to this whole thing other than it felt weird to think this is what the NFL is now, but I just sort of accepted it and it may be even more. I don't know, uh, reactionary to sit here and say, okay, the defense has figured everybody out, and now this offensive thing. Like, I'm not ready to do that, and I don't think it's just because of the cold. Yes, I understand it was cold in Chicago, but there have been a few games in the last few weeks where you saw these offensive teams that you just expect to always put up 40 points. That hasn't really happened. Yeah, I I look at the Rams' loss, and I was a little bit more concerned about that than I was the Saints' loss. I think the Saints are a better all-around team, right? Um, and especially if they go to home field, all Their these defense teams have been better. You know, that Rams defense hasn't been as great as you would think. No. Name. And I, I still think the Saints defense is better. Um, and at the end of the day, if the Saints get home field, like I think they're going to the Super Bowl. Like that's it. And cause I don't, I don't see a team like Chicago or, um, or Dallas doing that in New Orleans. I just don't see that. Now, maybe in Los Angeles, if the Rams get home field, or they have to play the, if they have to play the Bears again in Los Angeles, could the Bears do that again? Sure. But I don't know. I, I I look at the teams like the Cowboys and the Bears. I'm like, can you do it three times in a row to get to the Super Bowl? And I don't believe that. I don't believe they can. Really, these last couple of weeks, nothing. Even though it's been different and the outcomes are weird, it hasn't changed. And like, I don't think all these different teams. Like sometimes that happens when good teams start losing. 
that you just want to replace them. Well, you know, they're not they're not hot anymore. And the Bears for all the, they, they they just lost to the Giants. Yeah, I mean, I think they just got hyped up to play a Rams team, and they the weird thing with the Rams though is, and I don't know if this is a McVay thing or a Goff thing or both, but they had like no answer for anything the Bears were doing. They they like refused to run the ball in the first half, and I mean they kept getting consistent pressure on Goff, and they didn't know how to handle it at all, and that made me sort of nervous. Like, are they a little bit of a one trick pony? Hmm. They they haven't. I don't know. I'm just gonna. I mean, Goff. What he ended up with four picks in that game. Yeah, one of them was at the end of the first half. Yeah, or whatever. So that one doesn't really. Count. But I mean, Goff's like a guy who I feel like. And Trubisky wasn't any good in the Trubisky game. I mean, here terrible. we go again. And that's Trubisky. why again people are like, oh, Bears, look out, Super Bowl run. I'm like, no, like no. I can't. I can't look. If they win, if the Bears win the Super Bowl with Trubisky, then you're gonna see teams just go, okay, let's do the cheap, cheap QB, and if we have the right offensive mind, we can have an average. Because I have this bigger podcast that I think I'm going to do with The Ringer where I feel like there's six or eight guys that bring it every single week that you shouldn't really be debating about week to week. Like, Philip Rivers shouldn't be a guy that's still in the week to week debate group. Okay, the guy's going to be retired and radio shows are going to be going, is he top 10? You know, and he'd be like, oh, he quit. Two, he hasn't played in two years. You're still doing this Philip Rivers thing. And then I think there's these, these, this group of maybe 15 to 20. That seems high. Maybe it's like 17. I don't, I really think there's this group of just, oh, Cam's awesome. No, he sucks. Oh, look how great. I, I don't think I ever say Mariota's great. I don't, I don't think he's, I don't think he's going to be the guy there long term. I don't. The more I watch them, um, you know, Stafford, even Ryan, who I've liked more than others. I mean, he's had some terrible games recently. So I feel like more than half the quarterbacks in this league are week to week guys. I also get annoyed though, too, that, you know, people will be like, Hey, Nick Foles, uh, Joe Flacco won a Super Bowl. Like anybody could win a Super Bowl. Now, well, you don't but do that by design. Those guys right? also no. didn't play like Nick Foles and Joe Flacco play no. regularly. They played out of their mind. They play like Joe Montana. Like so, so that that theory to me isn't is irrelevant. No, that Flacco four week thing is 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 like the dumbest. That's like saying, well, you know, I met my wife in jail, so get arrested. I'm like what? Yeah, she was a prison guard. Totally hit it off. From the same hometown, knew a lot of the same people, and been the love of my life. Well, then I should go to jail. Like, that's the Nick Foles won a Super Bowl. So, okay, I should find a guy that's been kicked around the league four different teams and looked like a total bust. Not even a bust, because he wasn't drafted high enough to be a bust. So, whatever, whatever the end result is, you can't always apply, well, the path to it is the one that I want to do, too. It just doesn't really work that way. Speaking of Chicago, the Bulls. Let's just do a couple Ugh. minutes on the... <laughs> so it wasn't Fred Hoiber's fault? This Whoa. team... Uh, so we know that they lost to the Celtics by almost 60 on Saturday. And then they were supposed to come in for a practice, and they weren't happy about it. This could be a millennial topic, too. And Boylan decided, and he's been a lifelong assistant. He was the head coach of Utah. Go ahead and read his Wikipedia. I don't know who wrote if his mom wrote it. Because it was just, and I'm not even knocking him for it, but like it was clearly written by somebody who was very pro Boylan. Like my Wikipedia is not written by a pro Rosillo person. Boylan's is like lost in the first round of the tournament, but to a team that had these NBA guys. Or like this is what happened here, but he was so he comes in and he's hot, right? He's yelling at dudes, he's letting them have it a little bit, and that's just not cool anymore. If you're going to be a manager. Football coach is a little different because it's not like you're this touring family as much. Like football is so much easier to coach. It just really is. Because you don't 
don't have to deal with it. Like if you're a baseball manager, you get to just fall on the sword all the time for these dudes. In basketball, because it is a little bit more ego-driven sport, it can be more about you because the individual can matter so much more. And then the hype train of being the recruit and then college if you're even there for more than a year. But you understand, like in the social media presence of the NBA guy, like there's a real built-in kind of sensitivity selfishness that you can have being in the NBA that's different than any other sport. And I've talked about this numerous times, but like at one point the top six players in the NBA all had ad campaigns built around the fact that they're disrespected, which is comical, and we should do more work on that because it's true. It happened. Everybody had a different ad campaign that was like, oh, no one likes me, no one likes me. All right, so if you're going to be boiling, you're going to be old school, and the team is now, what, 6-22, and 22, uh, they lost to Sacramento. <sighs> Like they're not thinking they're six and twenty-two. They're thinking, who's this old guy that yells at us all the time and then wants to go run us in the morning? And the first thing that Boylan said when he took over was like, "This team's out of shape." I don't watch enough Bulls games because I don't want to. Why the hell would I put myself through that? Why would I know if they were in shape or out of shape? I don't know if he's even right. But the problem with this team is that you know the the old school guy can't be wrong all the time and the old school guy feels like he gets beat up and when i tweeted out like imagine being on the bulls and being this bad and then deciding that you don't want to show up to practice and he tried to say hey you you guys in the media are saying everyone doesn't want to be at practice that's not true it wasn't all of them and it's like it doesn't really matter man like guys didn't want to show up to practice and then there was going to be this mutiny and the team still stinks but I would, I would look at this as like, if you're always arguing, oh, well, the, you know, you, you shouldn't embarrass the player or you shouldn't run them or look at their scheduling and all this stuff. Like the old school guy, although outdated and everyone is telling him he's wrong all the time, he's not wrong 100% of the time. So if a coach wants to come in and decide, all right, it's been good cop here the whole time. This team stinks. I'm going to run you guys. I'm going to try a different approach. Good for him. Boylan may be a clown. He may be awful. I don't know. I mean, he's on Izzo's staff. He was well-respected. He's been in the NBA a really long time. People must like him. I don't know him at all, so I'm not turning this into like defending him. But here's what my guess would probably be. Jabari Parker, who's had a problem with everyone, okay, whose first thing after signing $20 million, which I still don't understand why they did that, decides that he's like, yeah, I don't really play defense, and like he's above it. Here's my guess on Zach Levine, leader. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. And then Wendell Carter, who I love, was like, you know, we had to clear the air. And all this. You've been in the NBA like a couple weeks, dude. A couple weeks. And whose mom, I think, was it his mom? I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this, but I think his mom was like, the NCAA is like slavery. And when you, look, maybe that's his mom, different opinion, but when you do that, like, I can't. When people act like that's profound, you're like, that's so insanely wrong and actually incredibly insensitive. So, my guess would be this is a group of dudes that have no leadership instincts whatsoever. And instead of wanting to fight back after being embarrassed by the Celtics on Saturday night, decided that they didn't want to practice. And that is something I would like to apologize to all Bulls fans for having to deal with. Because I actually do think this is really, really bad. And I, I can't imagine not having enough pride in oneself. But that's the thing. Like, hey, whatever, man. I got my long-term deal. I don't care, Boylan. Like, you really think you're going to be here next year? Like, I'm not going to listen to you. It doesn't matter. Like, I understand what the player's doing here. But just because I understand it doesn't mean that it's right. And I, I know you don't want to get blasted in the media. I know that you want to run wind sprints as, a, as an NBA player. But wouldn't you want to do something different to not get 
just housed all the time? Isn't there some part of you that has enough pride that you wouldn't want to be embarrassed? And instead you take it out on the coach? It's not the first time it's ever happened. It's not the last time it's ever going to happen. But it did bother me. You know what doesn't bother me? Telling time. That's right. Tiso, the official watch of the NBA. We should send a bunch of the Bulls and be like, hey, this is what time practice starts. Tiso brings performance and style to the game by offering painstakingly accurate timekeeping and stylish and authentic watches. Tiso's the official timekeeper of the NBA. Tiso worked with the league to introduce state-of-the-art shot clocks and integrated timing systems in all 28 NBA arenas, a first in league history, and ensure consistent timekeeping in each second of NBA gameplay. Tiso activates its NBA partnership at major NBA milestones and throughout the year, engaging with fans at NBA All-Star, NBA Draft, at retail locations, on NBA broadcast partners, on digital and social media, and with each of its partner teams during the season. This holiday season, get the NBA fan in your life a Tiso watch. Tiso Team Quicksters are 50% off, available only at us.tisoshop.com. Okay, let's catch up with my good friend, Adnanver. I didn't really think that I would do a podcast with you where I'd start with Harold Baines, but, you know, you and I, you know, I, people forget how much I used to love baseball. And Baines is like in my wheelhouse. And last night I'm on, I'm in a hotel looking at baseball reference Harold Baines numbers going, he led the league in nothing ever. Um, his best MVP finish was ninth. And you know what I love about this is that for people that don't understand, you're going to be on 75% of the ballot. Okay. And then he wasn't even close. He was off the ballot. And then there's this veterans committee, which is called now the eras committee, where it's just a bunch of guys who are ex-players, executives, whatever. And apparently Reinsdorf is on it, was the owner. LaRusa, who was his manager. And then I think, was it Pat Gillick, was his GM with the Orioles? It's also on it, too. So you had all these guys stumping for Baines, and then he gets 75% of the vote from this Eras Committee thing. And the whole reason I'm going on this rant is that it once again is an example of everybody needs to stop giving writers crap for how they vote for awards because the writers actually do get it right more often than any of the ex-players or people in the building do. That's the type of Rosillo rant that I have needed in my life. So good to be back with you, Ryan. I couldn't agree more. When I saw the headline, I honestly thought it was from The Onion. And I said, hang on, I don't follow The Onion. So although that would be a great satirical headline, Harold Baines Hall of Famer, this is actually legit and a grave miscarriage of justice. To your point, we could do a laundry list of people who aren't in the Hall of Fame. I won't go through all of them, but I'll give you one, and that's Marvin Miller. And I know you know Marvin Miller was instrumental in how baseball changed, particularly for players, and getting them all of this money because he was ran the Players Union, and for years, um, as Kurt Flood sued for his freedom, you know, he was a baseball slave, and Marvin Miller was, these, was this guy who was a catalyst for creating change and bringing about free agency. And I know some people decry that because they say, oh, God, agencies ruin things. I don't care for the luxury tax. And every time a big player is going to go out there, it's going to be the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, or now the Phillies are going to spend stupid money on Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. But Marvin Miller changed baseball for the better. And the fact he's not in the Hall of Fame is beyond farcical. And Harold Baines is in. And as you said, there's no way you can slice it. Like, you start to say to yourself, maybe I'm out thinking things. Maybe he's actually a better player than I realized. It's way worse than I thought it was. The Ringer did an amazing job on this. I got to check to see who did the piece. Like, they basically kind of looked at, like, what your peak years are and then this variance of, like, how far off you are from everybody else. And it's basically an argument to be made that he's not, like, 50% of the player that all the other right fielders in the Hall of Fame are. 
Like there was never a time, and I know this is a broad ex- extrapolation, but there was never a time he said Harold Baines is must-see TV. That doesn't mean every guy liked that as a Hall of Famer, and people can try to say, oh, Craig Beasley was a compiler. He was never the best player on his team or a standout star. But Craig Beasley still had 3,000 hits, okay? Like, even as a compiler, he compiled a lot of great statistics. Harold Baines at his apex was what? A good slugger who had a great beard who looked good in the White Sox uniform. Like, nobody ever said to themselves, man, that Harold Baines crushes it. And of all those numbers you mentioned, the MVP vote was the one that stood out to me. Because I'm always like, listen, if you got like six or seven top five MVP votes, like, that gets my attention. Like, people were asking, is Paul Goldschmidt as good as you think? I'm like, yeah, are you kidding? He's a six-time All-Star, and he's second or third in MVP voting three of the last five years. That's a great player. Baines was in ninth place was the best he ever was. At his best, he was once a top ten player. It's absurd. Yeah, that's how I always want to feel about it and why I've actually – Ben, what was it, Saruti, the guy from The Ringer? I should uh, know. Ben Lindbergh. Ben Lindbergh, really good piece on it. And then you always have the like thing you got to do now, where, like this isn't a personal attack on Harold Baines. I don't know Harold Baines. I heard he's a great dude, okay? I, I don't care either way. If he was my roommate in the Cape, I wouldn't have voted for him because I always feel like the simplest explanation as I get older and older, the simplest reasons usually are the ones. And if – Harold Baines, like at any point growing up, like I remember, yeah, he was a tough out with the White Sox. Like he was the guy you knew in the lineup. But you weren't ever like, you weren't going, oh my God, how are we going to get Bainesy out? Um, I just, like you should feel, and that's what I've always kind of liked and respected about the Baseball Hall of Fame, which I know no one wants to do, but I like that it's kind of strict. You know, basketball lets in everybody. Like, if you just score a ton of points, you're going to be in it. You'd be like, oh, okay, bad team, 15 years. Yep, scored tons of buckets in like everybody gets in the basketball hall of fame and it's not the nba's hall of fame the football hall of fames you know it's it's maybe too strict with certain positions but then if you win like eli manning's going to be a hall of famer he shouldn't be by the time eli manning's career is over he is not a hall of fame quarterback he just isn't but he's got the two super bowls he's going to be in i like that baseball is difficult at times the steroid thing vote him in leave him out i don't know i'd vote him in and the Pete rose thing doesn't bother me but this kind of stuff where you go Hey, he's a good guy and friends are on this committee. I mean, he wasn't, writers weren't even putting him on, what, 6% of the vote one year? Like it was, to be at 75% to get in and he was at 6, I think, and then off the ballot is absurd. And the only thing I like about this entire ordeal is that it does show how you and me and maybe people are surprised how much they actually care about the Baseball Hall of Fame. Because you're right. If nobody turned a blind eye and said, okay, Harold Payne's in, what do I care? Then, then it would just be another shrug of the shoulders collectively and people would go on with their day. But the fact there's such hysteria about this proves that people do actually care about the Baseball Hall of Fame. It does actually merit something. And I think of all the Hall of Fames, and yes, I'm biased, six years baseball tonight, blah, blah, blah. But I do think there's something special about the Baseball Hall of Fame. I've been to Canton. I've been to Springfield, obviously, to the Basketball Hall of Fame. I'm from Toronto. I've seen the Hockey Hall of Fame. I think Cooperstown's fabulous. Like when you go there, it's a special event, a special occasion. And to me, the Hall of Fame still means something. And anybody who tries to say, well, baseball isn't what it once was, or nobody cares, well, then why do you think people get so bent out of shape about this kind of stuff? Because they do think it matters. If there's one sport where the history of the game matters and past performance is still revered, it is baseball. And that shows that people do care that so many people are frustrated about it, going, man, this just doesn't feel right. Can we change this? This is a joke. Okay, speaking of jokes, are the Mets really going to trade Syndergaard? But here's the crazy part of it. So all name teams, baseball, GM, Brody Van Wagenen, baseball is back. No, yeah, but it works on a lot of baseball hot stove talk. I love it. This is exactly what we're still a pod listeners have been craving. Brody Van Wagenen. On the one hand, he goes What's up with this Edwin guy? Diaz, who's a 
stud. I mean, listen, everyone kept saying, wow, what are you getting Cano for? 36 years old, $100 million left. Yeah, okay, whatever. Cano is a good second baseman. He'll never be great again. Might get hurt, whatever. Diaz is unbelievable. He's like one of the best closers in baseball. And yes, closers can be a little bit tenuous. Yep. You saw Kimbrell had an ERA north of five in the playoffs, but whatever. Diaz is great. They have a few prospects. It doesn't make sense then to go, hey, Mets are all in getting a second baseman who's 36 and a stud closer, but then they're going to go ahead and deal Syndergaard. Now, their offense is porous, Ryan. They know that it was absolutely putrid. They need more support. But honestly, I don't know how, if you're going to contend, you trade Syndergaard. It just sends an awfully mixed message to me. It's DeGrom, Syndergaard, and everybody else. Fine, we'll figure it out. But those are the two guys who are your horses who lead the rotation. I... uh... I don't want it to happen. I mean, not because he's going to end up in the Yankees, uh, but you know, the Yankees, if they ever wanted to move and do horror, like you're going to get something back for it, you know, and I don't know about Glaber Day if they'd even want to trade him. Um, and then if they end up with Machado, they could clearly move one of those guys anyway, so it wouldn't really matter. Uh, but, but, but to your point with the Yankees, it's interesting. Like Machado apparently wants 10 years, $300 million. And as our buddy Buster only said, he bet the family farm in Vermont the Phillies are going to get either Machado or Bryce Harper. And they're the only ones who will be willing to pay 10 years, 300. Apparently, the Yankees are willing to go eight years, 240, 250, which is a ton of money for an elite player, top five position player. But they need pitching. Like, I, listen, I get the fact you go, hey, fine, we already have a good offense. We'll just get a gigantic offense. We'll add Machado to the mix, and we'll be fearsome. But to me, I'm like, you got to do better than just try to sign Jay Happ. Like, you struck out and getting Patrick Corbin. He went to the Nationals. You weren't going to give up a sixth year. If I'm them, I'm with you. I, I swing for the fences and go, fine. I'll give up an Andujar, and I'll go get Syndergaard. And now I feel really good about my rotation with a big upgrade. The Mets can't do that, though, because this guy, the Brody dude, Brody Van... Brody Van Wagon and all names. going to call him. Um, Brody Van Dam. Buster just crushed this guy as soon as he got the GM gig, right? Because he's an agent. And Buster, I, I, that was very... Buster wasn't messing around when this guy got the gig. Like, there was something going on there. Like, he was, he was letting him have it. Did you notice that? Yeah, the thing about Buster is that I think he's fairly even-handed, and privately he'll tell you more about his opinion on certain people. Absolutely. Like publicly... Publicly, he's fairly objective, but in that case, I think he was kind of like, well, hang on a second, why is an agent now running the Mets? Like, this is a clear conflict of interest that, I mean, I mean not conflict of interest, but it's just odd. A guy was representing some Mets players, and all of a sudden he's running the Mets. Like, this shouldn't happen. That's odd. Yeah, that would be like your guy, Nick Khan, all of a sudden head of head of ESPN2. <laughs> You know? Listen, could always happen. I, mean, I, never, I never doubt these Imagine things. Imagine if Nick Khan was in charge. Well, he wouldn't do it for ESPN2. He'd be like all of a sudden be like, Greeny, it's called... It's up in Adnan is the new morning show, and you're going to do updates. <laughs> Although, wait a minute, Greeny's got con too. So, he, you, is you like that? That might be the new morning show for you, up in Adnan. Listen, I got four kids. Whatever pays the bills, man. You know me. I, I'm I'm available for up in Adnan. Great, up in the air. Whatever you want me to do. Clooney sequel. I'm happy to do whatever you guys want. By the way, last time I saw you, you had like two kids. What happened? What are you doing over there? So what we figured was, you know, and it was always me and my brother growing up, two kids, but it's a little bit lonely, so might as well go for three. And then we had our boy, Shaz De Niro, who's unbelievable. And they figured if you go for three, Ryan, you might as well have four, because we're trying for that girl, and now it's four boys. Maz Pacino has no joined the mix. So, listen, I, I don't know if we're going to go for a starting five of a basketball team. I know you'd appreciate that. The Rosillos, you're the eldest of five. I think we're shutting it down at four, but if we really are just desperate for that baby girl, Maybe we'd go for five. But listen, I got adorable nieces, man. We, we don't have to have a girl. Four boys, the furniture longevity already in peril. Let's just stick with four boys. So wait a minute. Chaz De Niro, and then the next kid, his name is what? Maz Pacino. That's the youngest guy. Five weeks old. <laughs> <laughs> of anybody you know, you're most unsurprised by this. Like, yeah, I named his kids De Niro and Pacino. What if you had another boy? <laughs> Would you... 
But then I think we got to give Gene Hackman his due. He's going to get in the mix somehow. <laughs> what about like... Um, Yo, Brenner. Like Muhammad Loja. <laughs> well, this is, as you're pointing out, it's excellent. You have these, you have these Muslim names and these Sicilian names. You're going to have, like, Abdul Pesci all of a sudden. You're like, okay, but I mean, it's, it's a little different. But yeah, right. I, I, was trying to, I was trying to go with one. You know, I mean, I... You know, I just I was trying to fit in there a little bit. Now listen, Mohammed Loja definitely a good one. I think that's in the mix. Loja, listen, you know what I should get is the guy, your guy, Brian Dennehy. Like, if we can get Dennehy in the family, how did Dennehy you know, right be- away? How did Dennehy become my guy? When we were talking about certain actors, you know, like listen, I've always been a big Brian Dennehy fan, and you're like, I just like the square jaw, the muscular build. I'm like, yeah, he's oh, he's a pretty good actor. Did I really? Because I mean, I liked him in what FX, and um, you know, he was good. He was. Was the Bobby Knight movie good that we did in O two? Was it O two? I think. Uh, I never saw it to be honest with you, but I. I you did good reviews. Like, he's he's always good. Uh, I remember watching Blue Chips and going, "Well, this is the Bobby Knight movie." Like clearly, Nick Nolte just thinks he's Bobby Knight, and Dan Dockage corroborated that. Dockage collaborated on on Blue Chips. Yeah, he's in it, and I said, "Listen, man, I love Nolte and uh, Affliction, and obviously Forty Eight Hours." Down and out Beverly Hills, sure, why not? And I was like, what's he like? He goes, honestly? And I'm waiting for like this great answer. Like, seriously, what's Nick Nolte like? And he goes, brutal B.O. I said, oh. <laughs> I said, wait, wait, hang on a second. He's playing a basketball coach. It's probably a method thing, Doc. He's like, I got to tell you, man, that guy stinks. Nice guy, good actor, likes to have a couple beers, but he stinks. <laughs> <laughs> now, now the famous DUI picture all makes sense. Like, yeah, Nolte just reeks the entire time. Like, all right. So... Dockage scattering report on working on blue chips. Nolte, Nick Nolte. I don't know why I gave him the French name. I like that you went Nolte there for a second. I gave him an accent. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I was watching this TV show in Montreal last night on, on my computer, so my accents are all messed up right now. And I was in northern Vermont, so I was practically. I was about to say, return to your Vermont uh, yeah. stomping around. I love yeah, it. I was up near Sherbrooke, Laval. Uh, so, all right. Did, me, did, you, did you happen to catch any episodes of the Red Green Show, one of the favorites of Brian Marcello college years? No, I haven't seen that show in forever. That was the first time I went, wait a minute, like this works? And it killed it up there, right? What's your population <laughs> at? What are you, like 33 million? Good guess, 35 million now, yep. 35 million. I don't like when you guys criticize us for our problems. We get a few more, a few more head count down here. You know? That is true. You're dealing with more mass production. You got ten times the population, so there's more headaches. But it, it's just a Canada inferiority complex, right? When you're when you're one tenth the size of Big Brother, yeah, like but nitpick a little bit. But that's not what it feels like anymore. It feels like you guys call us out for all sorts of political things. Now it's like you know, you, you, if I had a family at twelve, I'd have more issues than the guy with one and a half kids. <laughs> you know, I, su- I suppose. But don't you find Trudeau to be a pretty charming guy? Like I, I don't want to get political here. But Trudeau, pretty charming guy. Wouldn't you not like to have him as a prime minister? See, that's the thing, though, is we're all obsessed with looks. We're all obsessed with looks. Like, we just look at guys like Gavin out in California. You look at him and go, okay, that guy, I like the cut of his jib. So he's in. And uh, I think that's that's really all we do now. Like, if we really broke it down, a lot of this, everything has to do with looks. It's seriously, everything has to do with looks. I've, I've totally figured that out now. It, I knew it already, but now it's only been confirmed living out in Los Angeles. Well, listen, you are in the superficial mecca of all places, living in Los Angeles. Like, everyone there is having uh, green tea and protein shakes and runs 12 miles a day. And if your body fat's over 12%, you're scorned. You have, like, a leper. Yeah, if you're higher than, yeah, if you're, like, you can't be just taking your shirt off, you know, walking around. 
But the dad bod thing, that never really made it out to L.A. All right, let's talk movies. Saw Bohemian Rhapsody the other night. And I got to tell you, I feel like they glossed over a bunch of stuff. It just went so fast. And once I saw that it was PG-13, I went, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble now. And, you know, Freddie Mercury's story is pretty incredible. Uh, Pakistani family. So he didn't want anybody to know that. And then that's why he kind of changed his name a little bit. And then, you know, he's moving luggage at Heathrow. And the next thing he stops by finds a hot girl that apparently is checking him out at a show and it's a band he likes and then he sings in the back of a parking lot and now they've been touring his queen for a year so i felt like that went way too fast as a story so let's start there i love the fact pakistani family did not realize that like my own roots i'm like all right farouk went to freddie that'd be like adnan going to addy so i'm like okay i can relate to this sure i could have been a singer at one point just completely ostracized myself and my family addy jupiter Right, and then the whole outsider thing, I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But I'm with you on, he seemed to become a superstar overnight. Like, forget about a star is born. This guy, like, had this meteoric rise, all of a sudden, now he's running queen. Uh, yeah, like, out of nowhere. Way. Like, you know, can right. we see some of the rough and tumble? Like, all of a sudden, boom. You know, and I'm like, yeah, like wow, all right, okay, this right. worked. I agree. If you're going to go standard biopic, then give me a couple of those scenes when he's down and out. You know, what, what's that first record where he does it, he nails it, or the record flops, he thinks he's done. Like, give me a couple of those scenes, at least to build up to it. All of a sudden, he's this gigantic star. I thought he was great, though. Rami Malek, I don't watch Mr. Robot. As you know, I just stick with the movies with Cinephile. But uh, people who watch TV a lot tell me he's great. And I thought he was preening and strutting all over the place, kind of like a Mick Jagger type. I thought he was really good. Uh, it's Freddie Mercury. But I'm with you, man. As far as the movie, it wasn't particularly um, notable or original. And people who love Queen were furious with the movie because they said they completely took things out of order and they made that whole Live 8 concert, which is the climax of the film, you know, that wasn't actually true to life, to which I say, listen, it's not a documentary. It is a fiction film. So, like, you know what, you're going to have some, some issues with it. But I know the Queen Army, who are diehard fans, were really angry with the way it. it went down. Right. I was I was not happy about that. Because you're right, like the down and out thing, the struggle on the way there. Wahlberg had to nail the rehearsal in Rockstar, and then he wasn't accepted right away. So that was kind of more believable. But I went through the fact or fiction stuff, and I expect things to be tweaked here and there, you know? give it the old touch, but he, in the movie, they have him broken up. Spoiler alert for all those that don't want this to be ruined. Um, in the movie, it's like, hey, I have AIDS. I'm dying. Sorry we broke up. Can we please get back together? Play one more time for everybody as Queen Live Aid. And then I remember that Live Aid show. Like, that was a really, I know people laugh now, but like, in it was 1985, that was a huge deal. It was a huge deal worldwide that concert, and then you know he ends up he ends up dying later on. In real life, they had been back together for six months touring. <laughs> they had already gotten back together. That it wasn't just that Freddie Mercury bailed solo. That one of the other guys had done two solo projects already anyway, and he didn't tell him before because he didn't even know. He didn't know he had AIDS until two years after the Live Aid show. So that, I thought, was like a real departure from what really happened. So the point of like, okay, it's not a documentary, but you changed his whole deal and the relationship with the band for this kind of dramatic finish, which I understand. But, man, were there some departures there. And I didn't know any of that stuff because as soon as I watch a movie like that, I go, okay, let me see what was real and what wasn't. And basically every major beat at the end was like, no, that's totally out of order and it's not really what happened. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think at least the, the audience or the filmmakers would say, listen, 
Was it uh, commercialization? Sure. Like, again, we're not going to be true to life. We're trying to sure. get the spirit of the guy in the story. But you're right. If you know the true story, you go, man, so this whole idea of this magical reunion, let's do it for Eddie, he's dying, or Freddie, he's dying. No, actually, we didn't even know that. That's <laughs> what careers on the side, but whatever. By the way, Bobby Moxley get nominated for Academy Award for Best Actor. He just got nominated for Golden Globe. I want to see a Best Supporting Actor nomination for his teeth. I mean, that was unbelievable. That overbite he had, I don't know how he did it, 16 hours a day with those dentures in. But those teeth, the fact he was such an incredible star, that's the real magic of this film. That's what it's taught me. Is that you can just have jacked up teeth. Nobody needs Invisalign. To your point, you need to be good looking to be successful in life, relatively speaking. I would agree with that. But you can have jacked up teeth like that and still be a rock star. Yeah, I give Freddie Mercury a ton of credit for that. And then he does have a great line. That is a great line written by the uh, screenwriter where it, I don't know if it's true or not. So um, The six-minute line? No, no, not the six-minute line. The line where he's at the press conference and things are starting to go real haywire and they're asking about his sexuality and um, a reporter's like, why haven't you gotten your teeth fixed? And he's like, because oh, I didn't want to stand out in Great Britain. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way he actually said that. That's a great line kicked off by a writer. That's great. It, I don't know. I don't know if it was or not. I mean, Maybe I'll fact check that one a little bit later. So I went into that one with super high hopes. And I'm an idiot because I seem to want everything. I'd rather something be boring and accurate than inaccurate and more entertaining. So I'm I'm in the minority on that one. I haven't seen A Star is Born yet. It was between that and I should have. I don't know. I, I know everybody loves it. I don't know. I don't know if I want to even talk about that because I feel like everybody's already talked about it a million times. What do you well, want to talk about? Bohemian Rhapsody, what did you think of the Mike Myers cameo? Which is very, for guys like us who, of course, know uh, Wayne's World, that great scene, Bohemian Rhapsody, which Mike said, him and his buddies, growing up in Scarborough, Ontario, a borough of Toronto, they'd go beyond the Maple Leafs games and always crank it up, you know, headbang the rest of it. So, of course, he's cast them. We're playing a record executive who is so uh, disdainful of this Bohemian Rhapsody being the six-minute single. Did you find that scene funny or did you find it too cute? No, I actually thought it was kind of cool. I thought it was like a cool little thing in that the big resurgence for Queen after Wayne's World, and you know, for again, for younger people, I don't know if you, you realize that Queen all of a sudden became like one of the number one bands in the world again because of Wayne's World. So yeah. I was working in high school at a CD shop, and we couldn't, we, we kept, I mean, we kept selling out of Queen left and right, and then they started reissuing stuff, and I don't know if that's when Wembley came out. And then classic or whatever and all that stuff. So they had, they had like multiple resurgences, which is really a testament to the band and how unique they are. And look, there's almost been no moment where I'd ever say, okay, Queen's my go-to right now. Maybe there's a handful of songs I like and then maybe five more that I go, oh yeah, that's right. I do kind of like that. I don't own any of it. Um, and you know, radio, radio goo goo, radio gaga, that never really did it for me. So. Um, I like that Myers was in there, even though he kind of looked like an after picture of Fat Bastard in that role. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Mike just, if he could, he just wishes he was British. Like, I know his, his mom is English. He just wishes he could be there all the time. Obviously, Austin Powers is an iconic character, but I'm with you. Like, he's, he's just, he's just like being that kind of ugly Scottish English kind of guy. It's just who he is. That's who he wants to be, I feel like. To hear part two of this amazing conversation with Adnan that has no baseball in it. Check out part two of the Rosillo Show podcast. So what else is going on with you, speaking of the Scottish? Uh, things are great, man. Uh, college football playoff going to be a blast. Me and uh, Joey and Jesse are going to be at the Cotton Bowl for four days. Not crazy about Arlington, but it's all right. Wait Notre a minute, Dame, you guys Clemson, got Cotton Bowl? Really... Yeah, Cotton Bowl. Notre Dame, Clemson. What was the other assignment? Uh, then three days for the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans, so New Year's Eve with Palmer, which could just be a mess. 
I mean, just imagine him just just puking it up. It's just, I mean, I don't know how that's going to go. But we again we have uh, Texas and Georgia. Palmer, and Palmer keeps it together. National championship. Uh, that's right. Palmer's too mature now. He's he's hanging out with like Sirhan, the kid from Million Dollar Listing. I, I've seen the posts. That was like a that was like a friendship determined to happen. <laughs> I find his Instagram like, and listen, I don't want to disparage anybody because listen, he's wildly popular. But it's just a lot. Like, I feel like the posts, you know, a little goes a long way. But he's like, oh, man, when you got to do it, you got to go all the way. Oh, so selfies. too much. You think Palmer's selling it too much. Is that what it is? He's so good looking. But he doesn't even remind everybody. Here's another selfie. Look at my, look how good looking I am. Here I am again. I'm at a Knicks game. Okay, now I'm, now I'm, 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 I'm a chef. I'm on baking holiday championship. Like, I don't need that much, Palmer. Yeah, how's he doing with the cooking show? Like, what's the ultimate end game here for Palmer? It's not game day. It feels like GMA. I think so, too. And I said to him, I said, will you ever give up football? I go, dude, like, you're, you're crushing it. Daily Mail just got nominated for an Emmy, which is the show that he does. Like, I think he beat extra one week in the ratings. Like, it, he's doing great. And I was like, I love having you here. But listen, Thursday, college football from the American, like, we're getting housed here. Like, Ed Oliver's now playing for Houston. We're up against some great NFL game. Like, I appreciate that you're driving two hours to hang out with me and Galloway here. But I feel like you could just be doing Saturdays. You can go back to calling games if you want. You could be on GMA. And he was like, honestly, I want to do football forever. I'm a football guy. It's who I am. It's who I've been. No matter what happens, I'll do it. And I said to him, Ryan, I go, listen, if you're making like $15 million a year doing GMA, if he replaces Stephanopoulos one day, I wouldn't advise coming to Bristol every Saturday for a 15-hour day. He's like, well, maybe. No, there's no way. Because those GMA people make so much freaking money. Like, I remember I had no idea. And I knew, you know, I made this analogy uh, with, so I forget what was going on. I maybe have to look that back up. Can, I don't know, Saruti. Can you help? Can you get the IT department? I had a tweet about there's certain people that are asked to do things and other people that are asked, like, it's just not going to happen. There's head coaches and their coordinator faces, you know? And then the thing I was thinking of is, like, Van Pelt would get asked to host a parade show. I will never get that call. Adnan will host a parade show. You could. And I'm not mad that I'm not going to get that call. But I never thought about network TV or anything like that because I just knew who I was and, and who I wasn't. And then I found out that those people make like 15 and 20 million a year. And I went, Oh my gosh. Imagine being on that path and like hitting that right around 41, 42. And then you can, oh. as a, as a guy, you could ride it out and you could, you could make a hundred, two hundred million dollars in your forties. <laughs> you could. I mean, I'm not exaggerating here. This is true. I know. It's just so lucrative, though. Like, you don't even believe, like, listen, I know everyone thinks we're overpaid anyways, but when you hear those kind of salaries, you're hanging on. Russell and I are vastly underpaid, okay? We, we do actually do some work, okay? Those lightweights are doing nothing, and they're stealing money. It's a heist of epic proportions. But there's something to be said of, of being that appealing to so many different parts of America. Like, to be somebody who they go in and they study your Q rating and all that stuff, and they, they figure it out. And they go, okay, because the, the woman has to be attractive, but she can't be, like, distractingly hot, okay? Right. And then she's got to be a little bit older, because I think that generally people get just super mad at young people in big-time roles. And then the guy, you know, Josh Elliott had that run for a little while. Palmer could do it. I actually do think Van Pelt could do it, even though, you know, it's not going to, like, if there was a swipe right on Van Pelt or Palmer, we know what would happen there. No offense to my boy. I think you could actually do it. I think you could do it. You're not too threatening. No. You're not so hot that it's threatening. <laughs> I'll say this, right, and I appreciate the compliment, but I listen, 
receding hairline now. I feel like my nose has gotten bigger over the years. I'm still short. Like, I think I would need Stephanopoulos some significant help small. to get in the picture. What's that? Stephanopoulos isn't tall. That's true, actually. You're right. All those guys are not tall, which helps. But I would need a little bit of help. Like, I'd need, it's kind of like a third-round buy. Like, something would have to happen for Burke to kind of just get in the back door. Like, okay, he'll work cheap. He's going to work weekends, holidays. All right, hey, do you want to give him a chance? Somebody was sick. All right, admin, fine. We'll give him a chance. Yeah, and you wouldn't, I mean, there's no way in a million years if Palmer ever got that, he's driving up to, from New York City again to Bristol for two hours. But he's smart. No. Like, he's smart. He has to say that. Like, he doesn't want to go, hey, as soon as I can bury this college, because you never know. You never know what's going to happen. You know, so. No, and I'll say this, man. You know this because you and I have worked with all these guys, right? NFL guys, NBA, college football, college basketball, baseball, of any sport. I'm telling you right now, he's a one seed. Like, Jesse is so good. He works so hard. And it's the number one thing I didn't realize. I've now worked with him two full years now in college football. I'm like, you know, we know how handsome he is. You know, we know he looks great in a suit, and we know he's got a good all sense right, of humor. We got it, dude. Right. But, <laughs> but. Like, you don't realize how much he works. Like no, he's his good. notebook of, dude, like, I'm telling you, and whatever the game, like, at Washington State, all right, most people would know Gardner Minshew. He's talking with the tight ends. He's got O-line notes. Like, I'm like, this guy's ridiculous how much work he puts in. He's awesome. No, he puts a ton of work in, and that's why I'll, I think when he first started doing TV stuff here, I was like, oh, man, I don't know. Like, this might not work out. And then that second year he came back, and it was like a guy that totally understood the playbook, and it worked out. All right, we did way more on this, um, way more on this than I thought. What else do you want to talk about? How are things to do, man? I feel like we haven't caught up lately, so I'd like to know how's the screenwriting biz going, how's it like doing a couple of pods. I was so excited when I saw Shruti last week. He was like, hey, Ryan wants to have you on. I'm like, great. And then, of course, Dan Stanzik, producer of Cinephile, mocked. He goes, wow, Ryan's going from Bill Simmons and Colin Cowherd to Adman. Like, talk about come downs. So I feel like you're killing it. Is that the case? Are you feeling good? Yeah, I feel really, really good about it. Uh, there's been no, um, you know, and regrets isn't really the right word. Uh, I feel really good about it. I mean, both podcasts are doing great, maybe better um, than I thought they would. You know, no, I I really- yeah, and listen, you're not the type to tweet it, but I saw you You were like top five. Is it? Am I right on one of Apple Podcasts, something like that? Yeah, I mean, on the episode or something. But, uh, yeah. but I kind of look at how it's doing internally against every other show that's here, and I feel really good about it. And then the Ringer thing's been great. And Simmons, as I try to tell everybody, that it's not just that he's been a great content guy when you work with him slash for him, it's so impressive. And the first time I got that experience was when I was at, you know, I wouldn't, I wasn't at Grantland, but I started doing the show, the TV show with him. And then I did it, those draft features and he would go back and forth with me on it. And he just was like, okay, whatever, you know, I trust that. So he just hires people that he trusts that have a vision and he, he'll mention something here or there. And then that's sort of it. Like he's very hands off because he trusts the people that he hires because he's so good at hiring people. And if you look at the Grantland roster of writers that he'd hire over the years and the ones that have stayed on with the ringer or gone on to do other things, it's incredible. It's like the 94 Expos. So, um, yeah, that part's been really good. And as far as the writing, like this part, I wish I could go into super detail and tell you about meetings and all of this stuff, but I can't. And I can only say that it's gone really well. So whatever the hurdles are, if there are five, if there are 10 to getting something done, and I'm certainly not naive enough to think like, oh, if somebody likes something, so we'll probably have something done here in a couple of months. Just not the way the business works and not the way that town works. But whatever uh, reservations I had, you know, like there's always that thing. It's like, okay, do you want to really be this thing or you just think you want to be this thing? Okay. You know, when you're younger and, and, you know, there's kids right now that are in college or just out of college and they're saying, 
okay, well, I want to be a sports agent. And you go, okay, do you really want to be a sports agent? Do you want to sit there and have to kiss everybody's ass? Do you want to have to make a million phone calls? Do you want to have to go to these awful colleges and watch these games hoping to get any kind of client? Do you want to be a grad assistant just so you can buddy up with some of the players that may eventually go pro? Or do you want to end up over in Istanbul? Like, do you want to, do you really want to be a basketball agent or do you think it'd just be really cool to be, you know, buddies with LeBron? And so when I asked, myself in those moments going like do I really want to be a writer or do I just think it'd be really cool and I'm past all the you know like I'm really doing it you know I'm I so that part of doing it writing it getting feedback uh it's it's been fun even on the days it's it's not even close to being fun so that well, part uns- but, but this thing it's unsurprising you've had the success because the work ethic has always been your strongest suit you know i'd say that publicly or privately to you because you're always going to grind and you'll put in the effort and whether or not it gets recognized or not you don't worry about that you're like oh i can't control the results but i know that i'm putting in the effort i know what my own value is i know that i'm going to take direction well and i think that kind of gets missed with you i think sometimes people think all right Rosillo. Ornery guy, angry guy. Go no, I'm so sick of hearing. Right, I'm so sick of hearing right. about that. It's just so right. funny because, like, all right, well, let's face it. Like, what was I supposed to be super pumped about? Right, but my thing is, I would, I would, I would use this as a line if I'm giving a rhyme or still a scouting report. Takes direction well, which I think you need to have to be a successful writer. If someone gives you notes, if it's somebody you respect, you'd go, all right, I get it, cool. I'll fix this. I'll fix this. Thanks for telling me. Like you, you've never been a guy who's sensitive to criticism. You welcome it. You're like, go ahead. Like I might, I might not agree with it, but if it's somebody I respect, I'd like to hear it. And if I can make it better, please let me know. Yeah, That's right. An important skill. Not many people have that. Oh, I, I appreciate you saying that. But yeah, I mean, the, the stuff with me, like eventually, when you had proven to me that you offer nothing creatively, then I am done with you. <laughs> you <know>? So <laughs> when I when I'm like, oh, really? Okay. Well, we'll give this a few months. And then I'm like, okay, really? And then, yeah, then and I do shut it off because I want. I'm an efficiency guy. Like I don't want to spend the next six months pretending you have awesome ideas. I'm just gonna shut it down. Like, hey, this isn't your thing. You yeah, know? and it reminds Work me like how schedule. your point about, but it's your point about how I wanted to be on air. Like, you know, you know, this happens all the time. You're like in a bar in Santa Monica, and some guys like, dude. I'd love to be on the radio. I think I'm really good. I know my basketball. And you're like, all right, is it going to like kill you not to be on air? Like, are you spending every no, week? No, you know what? I can't believe how okay I am with not doing it. Like, and right. it was weird because I think some people were like, dude, what are you going to do if you're not doing a radio show every day? You're going to freak out. Like, you're kind of a, you're a total loner. You're by yourself. Like, you're going to get up and then you're not going to be able to come in. And I was like, I think I'm going to be all right. And it's still these this thing where i don't know maybe maybe the espn thing does work out um and it feels like it is kind of working out in a way like it was it's almost an exact year since i left the radio show um but the fact that i'm still kind of around and doing this stuff and then coming back and doing some shows of Pelt and maybe some other stuff once the nba stuff really cranks up like i feel really good about it and i think everyone around here feels really good good about it but i've had maybe two moments where i missed I wanted to do a radio show after the Thunder lost to the Jazz in the playoffs because I wanted to just crush the Thunder because I I don't like them. There you go. So I'm not a hater. It's just there's so much about that team that drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't I shouldn't say I, I like I I don't hate it. Just a lot of things are proven true about my thoughts on Westbrook and Paul George in that series. Even though I kind of collectively like the team more now. And then the other one was after college football and the final playoff ranking. 
I missed it. I missed it that day, and I called Van Pelt, and I rambled on the phone for like 40 minutes about all these different segment ideas. So I still look at sports and think about segment ideas and all that stuff, and I know I could come back and do it tomorrow and be great at it. I really do. But I don't wake up. I don't have these moments where I turn on the TV. I still watch all of you guys because I like so many of you, and you're my friends. Like I listened to Levitar in the car for like an hour the other day because I was driving. I listen to Will all the time. I watch you and Joey and Jesse on Saturdays constantly. Um, you know, I throw on TV to be like, okay, you know, what's going on? And there's no point of, I look at it more like, holy hell, like I was there 10 plus years and I still sort of am. Like, that's cool. On to the next thing. I don't look but at it. That's why I like the fact you're still in the mix, right? Kind of like a sitcom, right? You're, you're a series regular. Now you're a recurring character, but beloved. When people see, like, hey, we're still back. You're still here. That's great. Sure. When I'm filling in, I'm filling in for Stephen A. Smith shows Thursday. And Liam Chapman, of course, is the guy who schedules it. I want to be like, hey, can we get Rosillo? Like, is that okay to do? Like, can, can me and Ryan just fill in for Stephen A? If he's cool, that'd be fun. <laughs> wait a minute. So you're doing the show? I'll call in. I'm not doing two hours. Wait a minute. He's only two hours. I could do that. That's what I mean. Like, like a part of me goes, listen, Ryan's probably too busy. But then I'm like, well, it's only two hours. <laughs> if he gets his workout in, like, hey, man, just, you know, just chop it up like old time's sake. Uh, yeah. No. So, I, you know, I, I don't want to. There's some people that have reached out to ask me to do podcasts and everything. And I'm like, I'll do it when I have like really good news. And that would be right. the writing stuff. So when I have really good news, which I expect to have, I don't know how long it's going to take. I'll do right. the longer form one, but I don't want to go on and go, well, we're close on this and there's some interest here. And this guy's reading this script and this is amazing. But the early returns on, I would, here's the thing. I would tell everybody if I sucked because I don't right. care. I would go, Hey man, I suck at this. And people are telling me how bad I suck. So maybe I'll just move some money around and show up in a cool car and tell people I'm a producer. I don't know. So I, uh, I'm, I'm just really okay with it. And I really love being in a different part of the country. And I love that, you know, at any moment, good day, bad day, I can walk down and sit by the water and read a book. And that's, that's kind of what's, uh, you know, made me happy to be out there. So there you go. This may be too much to say, but would you say you're more at peace with yourself? Well, it was, it was, uh, I wasn't at peace here every day because I just felt right. like I was losing a battle that was already fixed. That's how I felt. I just felt like yeah. there was nothing, there was nothing I could do with the radio show that was ever going to make anybody happy. So I, right. I, you know, when you have that, you put that much time in, it's not like it's some weekly show. Like, oh, I get to come in today and find out bad news. Oh, cool. <laughs> But I, I must say, Ron, I always appreciate you did a good gallows humor about it. Like, even when life is, like, punching you in the face, you can still turn on a dime and make me laugh. And that's a good skill to have. Yeah. So, you know, and it's not – it's just, you know, once once everything – once after Scott and I, was it was hard to replicate it. And then, you know, the, the Danny stuff was unfortunate. And then it was seven months that I knew what was going to happen. So – you know, and when I was saying, hey, I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. I'm like, nah, you're great. And you're like, all right, well, come on. Like, I'm not an idiot. Yeah. So that was, right. I'm more at peace as I'm not dealing with, you know, and maybe I should have just shut up. Maybe I should have just never been frustrated. Maybe I should have just been like, hey, man, this is awesome. We still pay you a lot of money and you're still at ESPN and this is going to be cool and you're going to do all these things. But I just too competitive, and I felt like I was constantly losing, even though I wasn't really losing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it's true, and I think you're pretty intuitive, too. Like, I think you're pretty, you have a good sense of, all right, which way is the wind blowing? If this doesn't feel right, then why am I Why am I pushing against it? You know what I mean? Let's just let's just ride it out, and we'll see what happens. Like, honestly, think of your life right now. As you said, you're in Los Angeles. It's a great city. 
things are working out? Like there's there's really no reason to uh, bemoan your fate. What is one thing you miss about the East Coast? Is there anything? I mean, obviously, family, friends, that kind of stuff. Uh I, do you, do you I like actually, watching NFL games at like? No, I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. Oh, I my would God. hate it. This whole thing, and I realize like everybody's selfish too, right? Everything's about looks, and everybody's selfish. And everybody who told me how great it is, they're all parents, and they go to bed early, and they get right. up early, and then they watch the games, and then they get to go to bed early because they're going to bed early. So I don't blame the parents and all these people, but the whole nine a.m. on a Saturday, I want to get out of the house for a little bit because I know I'm going to be there for twelve hours. So for right. me to get out, work out, go do something, hell, buy a book and feel like I'm a part of society. Like I used to make myself do that in Connecticut all the time just to make myself feel like I was doing something. So I don't miss those weird Sunday nights where it's the NBC game and it's another terrible NFC East matchup. And I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to sit here till 11. Like those Sundays on the East Coast started to get to me because I go, okay, I, I watch football for another 24 hours over the last two straight days. And I'm not asking for anybody to have sympathy for me because I understand that's a great job, but it right. it can, you know, it can be one of those things. So I don't like the earlier starts. Um, I don't, the cold, I, I wouldn't say I miss it, but it didn't bother me. So being back on the East coast and feeling how cold it was, it was like, man, I mean, nothing wakes you up like 11 degrees in the morning where you go, oh, man. Like, I'm, okay, let's do this. And, you know, I do, I do miss like Saruti and I miss coming in every day and that pre-show stuff i miss the combination of everybody working together to be like all right let's put together three or eight hours here and let's let's do a good show today and that part is is something i definitely miss and why i know i could do it again if i if i end up you know getting the opportunity or want to and i may not even want to in a little while so you know yeah i always appreciate your approach with the pre-show meeting because you know there's some guys who are like just save it for the show so literally the point of the meeting is just to say all right, what's the lead? What's top of two? Where are the guests? All right, uh, we're going to just talk about this. We'll figure it out. You actually used the pre-show meeting as a construct to develop the show. It was, I think this. What do you guys think? And then Sharuti would banter back, or Michelle, or me, or whoever. Which was, it was, it was a very organic way of actually using the meeting for a purpose rather than just a rundown. You know what I did when I was here is I sat in at a bunch of other pre-show meetings for different shows, and you know which one I liked the most was First Take. Like Skip and Stephen A, and it was really more Skip, and this means something because you know I don't like him, but he mm-hmm. he was great in the pre-show meeting, and he was smart. I mean, I always knew he was smart, and again, you know, we 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 used to like each other, but he was very good. I actually think he's as good as anybody I've worked with here in television. Where he was like, okay, all right, I understand what we have to do, but like, what are we doing here to make this? different what are we doing to make this interesting how does it drive the conversation where are seven or eight minutes and skip understood that i would say as well if not better than any single on-air person that i worked with here but then of course then i was about to go out on the set and he's acting like i'm about to give a eulogy for a president he's like okay you know so just make sure you know you just loosen up it's only two hours and you know you just you know you want to be yourself but you got to make sure that you really own it and i'm like hey dude like, I'm not here on a program, okay? Like, I've been on TV before. Right. So, uh, you know, which went over well. But I would, uh, I, that's what I always thought was, was really important to doing this kind of stuff. Cause I think it's a really, it's a weird time right now because, you know, ESPN went from, you know, Sports Center being the brand and then it was just opinion show after opinion show and then opinion shows in Sports Center to what feels now it's kind of like shifting away. So like some of these shows feel inherited. And I can't really keep up with what's going on direction-wise and all this stuff. But 
it's it's always this balance of trying to figure out how am I doing the stuff that's the most important and then how am I doing it in a way that, especially when you have the afternoon show where it's like, I don't want to do what does this mean for Brady's legacy for the 10th time the listener of you are seen it today. That locked in ESPN person that's going, oh, we're doing Brady legacy again today? Like, come on. So, right. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I always wondered. It's like the whole concept of play the hits and, of course, do the big themes. But can you do it in a way that feels fresh and you can find other things to kind of deviate from it? That's what I always thought was fun when we worked together. You'd say, all right, listen, dude, we got to do LeBron again, but top of the hour, let's just screw around for a couple minutes before we get into it so we don't lose our minds. Deal? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is that that's why I always really liked working with you is that. But see, do you think it was fair when people would say that if you did five days a week that you would go so off the rails it might be unlistenable? No, I don't think so, because I think, listen, I, I have the best gig, because when you're the substitute teacher, or the sixth man, you can just come in and let it fly, and it's like, all right, it's just, you know, add me in unhinged. Whereas if it was five days a week, I would be a little bit more measured and think of what things are going to work and say, all right, Ryan, probably can't do a big Flyers opening rant here. I'm not going to get into foreign films of the 70s in the last segment. Like, I would, I would figure out the fact that, yes, be yourself, build a brand, so to speak, but you can't be what you're doing you're filling in if you're doing it five days a week. Uh, would you do it five days a week? I don't, you know, David. You I used to want to, to bad, right? I know. I said this to Wingo the other day. I filled in with Trey the other day, and we, he's a blast. He's so much fun to work with. We had a, we had a really good time. And I said to him because he's like the hours are killing him. And I was like, I go Trey seriously, like these hours. He goes, dude, you have no idea. And I go, no, I know. Like I filled it up, but I'm like, this is tough. And he said to me, I said, David Lloyd did this line once. He said, TV is more money and it's easier, but radio is more fun. And I said to Wingo, and he goes, I don't know if I agree with any of that statement. <laughs> By the way, I don't know if if he's right about the more money thing. I don't think that's well, that, true anymore. No, because even Trey was like, well, it depends on the gig. But he goes, dude, if, if you're if you're a major market and you're like a morning show or afternoon guy, you're going to get more money for that than reading sports and highlights. Yeah, definitely now. I mean, more so now than ever um, because – you know, the radio thing, if you can, you know, do it, and that's the whole point and why I want to do it. It's like if you can build yourself up to be this thing that people are into, that ends up being far more valuable than how slick you are and how good you are in a suit. Unless, of course, yeah. you're doing GMA, right? Uh, so it's bad. So it doesn't sound like you would do a five-day-a-week radio thing, or you would do it for the money and then mail it in. I think it's the latter. I think it's, you know what, just for the sake of security, if the money was that good, let's sign a firm five-year deal. There's no way it can be broken. Let's just go ahead and get it done. And if it sucks in year three, well, hey, we're going to have to ride this sucker out. I win. <laughs> Everybody wants to do the deals now. It's like, can I do the deal where if I just don't want to do the show anymore, I get paid for like four years? <laughs> I think it's one of the biggest misperceptions of me. People think I love to work. I really don't. I, I When I'm at work, I'm thrilled to be there. I love seeing you. So you have a good time. But I would much rather not work than work. If I can get see, a that blows my work, mind. That blows yeah. my mind because you actually do seem like you'll be the guy that'll come by in studio to do so. I know you don't live that far away, so right. I, you know. Sometimes when I see guys at work all the time, I'm like, "Does that guy just hate his family?" You know, like if I had a family, people would have been like, "Rosillo must hate his wife and hate his kids." <laughs> He's constantly comes in early all the time. Like, what's What's going on? Like when I woke up, I was like, man, I want to go to work. Like, let's do it. You know, like that's kind of how I felt. I could, I tried to do this routine where I'd stay home and read like printouts and then eat at home. And I, I couldn't do it. I was just too excited. I'd be like, nah, I want to go in. I want to go in to do work, which is weird that now that I don't do that, I'm still okay with it. But, uh, I don't, what do you think is going to be your big thing? Like, what's the big, what's the five year Adnan plan? 
Where do you see yourself in five years? It's uh, a tough one, man. Listen, Jimmy Pitaro, our new president, apparently is big on baseball. So that's good news for me and Carl Ravitz. Tim Kirchin just turned 62 yesterday. Mark Tessera just signed a new deal. Jessica Mendoza, a new deal. So hopefully baseball keeps churning out because our deal's up in a few years. But hopefully Jimmy keeps baseball at ESPN. The college football has been great, man. As you know, I did not grow up with it. I didn't know much about it, but I love it now. I work with great people. I totally get why you as a Northeast guy was like, trust me, man, you're going to love college football once you get into it, once you buy it. So I think those two are pretty great. And then college basketball just kind of rounds out the portfolio. Obviously, Cinephile I love. I love movies. That's my passion. Ben Lyon's the best. So I, if I can keep that stuff churning, it'd be nice. But, but I'm with you. Listen, if the radio show ever happened, I'd love to at least give it a chance. To, to your point with the writing, if it's an abject failure, at least I know. Hey, Adnan Berkshire went for three years unceremoniously pulled after 18 months. But I gave it a shot, all right? I did my best. Do you think you're in the Levitard family? Because that's like the mafia now here. Uh, I think so, yeah. You know what? I, I think it, it took a while to crack it, to infiltrate it. But there was overtures about how I could be involved with uh, his party this coming Saturday. And um, Are you going? Well, I don't want to say too much about it. But the fact that they reached out to me for what I felt like when I was a fairly pivotal role, uh, that showed that I'm definitely, uh, it's definitely familiar now for me. Yeah, but now when I meet people, they're like, how can I make it at ESPN? I'm like, just get the Levitard crew to like you. <laughs> well, then I should thank fine. you because we were we were in Miami doing your show, and then we had Levitard on the show. That's the first time I got to meet him. It was, he was a little socially awkward. I don't think he was that excited to meet me, but Stugatz is phenomenal. Like, you talk about a guy who goes, he big hug right out of the gate. Like, I love that dude. He's great. How much did he get in his new deal? Because that one might bother me. Uh, I don't know offhand. He had texted me and said that he was... <laughs> just kidding, man. I'm just, I'm just, I want him to hear that I asked that, just so just so that he gets upset about it. I, I, I did like was, the PR release. I thought his PR release was very That funny. was great, because I was hoping for a lifetime contract. Um, anything else that we need to get to? No, I think we're good, man. Life is good. We're enjoying ourselves. I'd love to... Hey, oh, one shot up for you. I'm getting the boys, my elder two, Yusuf and Adin, into tennis. So I went to the racket coop, and I'm in there. The guy recognized me, Chris, yesterday. And then he said, we used to have a bunch of tennis players. I don't know if you know Andy Katz. I said, of course, Katz is like. Oh, did it go dead? Honestly, Sarudi and I just looked at each other, and the phone went out. So we're just going to end it there. That's Adnan Verk. Check out Cinephile. Subscribe to his podcast if you could. Before we get to Jonathan Green, the author of my favorite book this year, let's Check in with our good friends at Robinhood. Robinhood is an investment app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. Really easy app. Saruti's on it. I'm on it. Um, It's... Really, here are the things. Here's here's what I like about it, okay? It's obviously very easy to use, so I can't emphasize that enough. Like, yeah, I like talking about it all the time, but I'm not exactly out here doing options on oil barrels, okay? You know, in in the Japanese market at whatever time it would be, okay? Um, Robin Hood's got you covered here. No cost, no commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robin Hood doesn't charge commission fees. You just trade stocks and you keep all your profits, Design, super easy to use, easy to understand charts and market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. Robinhood web platform also lets you view stock collections, 100 most popular, sectors like entertainment, social media, curated categories like female CEOs, and analyst ratings of buy, hold, sell for every stock. 
Learn by doing it, okay? So if you're not 100% comfortable on some other platform, you're getting a little start here, you know, don't blow all your stuff on one stock with that graduation money. Trust me on that one. Um, learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks and track favorite companies with personalized newsfeed. Custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. So how about that? Sign up for free. You're going to get a stock. All right, so do it. Sign up at Rosillo. That's R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O at Robinhood.com. That's Rosillo.Robinhood.com. Okay, so let me just make sure everybody has that one again. Rosillo.Robinhood.com. You've heard me talk about this book a bunch. I, I know I've made reference to it here a little bit. Uh, Sex, Money, Murder, a story of crack, blood, and betrayal. It was out this year. I think it's on uh, paperback now. You can get hardcover paperback on Amazon, all that stuff. We're going to give away a few copies of it. Jonathan Green is the author, and this book is incredible. It's a book about this gang that started out in Soundview in the Bronx. The characters are Pipe, Peter Rollick, uh, another guy named Suge, and then John O'Malley's a detective. There's another cop that shows up on the scene. These guys um, are behind this awful, awful act on a Thanksgiving Day football game where there's sort of a truce in the neighborhood. Um, if you like, you know, if you liked all those movies growing up and you're my age, like there was this really weird thing with white kids where we were obsessed with Boys in the Hood. We were obsessed with Menace of Society. We, it was just this weird thing. Like we thought of these gang areas as, I don't know, it's just hard to explain. Maybe it's the same for my father or his father before him when they looked at like Westerns. I, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about white America's attraction to these stories, but I know that I was all in on it and I know that I was very interested in all of this stuff. Um, and I loved reading about it. And this is, I think, as good a book as I've ever read on the topic. And I can't wait to talk to the author. So let's do it right now. There's a lot of different stuff that I want to get to here. So I hopefully can fit this all in. Uh, it's, as I've said in the lead up to this, the fav, my favorite book that I've read this year. And I had a lot of free time, I guess, this year. Uh, so I want to just read the very beginning. I want to read the beginning for the listeners because it was the first time interaction I'd had with you. I didn't know anything about you. I didn't know anything about the book. I just picked it up at the airport, I grabbed it. And this first paragraph, and as soon as I saw it, I, I wrote to you a DM being like, this thing, I mean, you're going to be kidding me, had me hooked. So here we go. The start of the book, 1988, Soundview, part of the Bronx. Pipe woke up at 7 a.m. and admired himself in the bathroom mirror. He wore a freshly laundered white T-shirt and his skin... Uh, glowed in the dreary yellow light. Only a few months ago, before he started dealing, he and his brother would sometimes trade sneakers and jeans each day before school to give the impression to other kids they had more than one pair. Today, his profits from crack afforded him a new pair of Reeboks and some skinny leg Levi's. Uh, he looked in the mirror, affecting seriousness. A black shadow was just coming in on his upper lip, and he had the first trace of what would become a thick, wiry beard. He was looking older, he thought, more purposeful. He was 11. So as soon as that kicked in, I knew I was like, all right, here we go. So let's just start with you in the beginning. Um, how did this start for you to investigate this thing that took years and all these different stories? Like, how did this story start for you? Well, um, basically, uh, I was um, friends with a detective in the Well, he was a detective in the Bronx, and he moved over to working in the feds. And he sort of called me up like one day. And he said, look, I got these uh, two guys and they were in a Bronx crew um, who were uh, extremely powerful in the 1990s. And they got 
stronger and stronger and like we took them down and these guys are interested in uh, talking with someone about their um life stories so um and i asked a little bit more about it and he just said look you know because it's not uh, you know it's sort of heavy stuff so um so I warn you. So um, I came down, and the first guy I, I met was Shug, who was like one of the gangsters in Sex, Money, Murder. He was the one who um, carried out a brutal sort of murder on Thanksgiving. And that's um, where that's kind of the start of the, the prologue of the story. Is yeah, the Thanksgiving yeah, murder like exactly. That ends and up then, being the thing, right? Right. And then you know, so I had this meeting with Shug. We were kind of feeling each other out a little bit. I mean, he speaks so fast. I mean, it's like a machine gun. And so so much of it and stuff is in, you know, like Bronx or like gang slang that I mean, I wasn't sure that we completely understood each other. But uh, after an hour or so, you know, we, we, we seemed to uh, understand each other so well enough. And then he was sort of confident enough to introduce me to Pipe. Um, so a week or so... Later, um, I met Pipe out of, like, New York at a sort of undisclosed location. I mean, because so both these guys cooperated, I mean, there's money on their heads, um, so they have to be very careful, like, where they move. And um, met with Pipe, and Pipe and I, like, immediately hit it off. I don't know, like, what it was. I mean, like, we come from two completely different worlds, um, but we hit it off straight away. And what I was amazed about... Um, that sort of passage you read, I mean, that day when Pipe like, was 11 was the day he first um, shot somebody. Like, he was 11 years old. Um, he was uh, learning how to be a gangster. And, you know, throughout the course of my research, I was just amazed at how young these guys start and how young they were, you know, when they were doing very, very uh, serious like racketeering sort of stuff in New York, you know. Right. So the book takes us, you know, late 80s, early 90s, you know, the height of this this crime wave. And, you know, you meet Suge first. And John O'Malley, uh, the, the Bronx detective, who really, like, I was so fired up, he reached out to me to talk to me. Because, I mean, if you ever made this into a movie, I wish he could play his own character because he sounds... Absolutely. Perfect. He's I mean, fantastic. you got to get I'm that guy legend. in acting classes now so he can play himself. So... O'Malley grows up the 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 cinematic part of this like he grows up in the Bronx. This is his neighborhood. And he as you tell the story, like you have all these different parts of of the story that all converge, but you know, he didn't really want to leave the neighborhood and then he felt he had to. So in a way he's kind of going back and trying to fix his neighborhood. But as as Pipe is at 11, Peter Rollick, who's, you know, a guy that a lot of people know about, he's referenced in in a lot of songs, people still make shirts as he Sits in. I don't know if he's still in solitary confinement in Colorado. I know it was like 150 years or something. Um, and, mm. and, and he was so, so we'll get to that a little bit later. But so you, you're meeting these characters present day as they're telling you this version of their story with sex, money, murder at like 11 and 13 and 14 years old. And what I couldn't really believe was that it's it's one thing to read books about gang members and crime and all these investigations, but these kids were at another level. And it's true that in the book that. Like even the guys that were in their twenties that were gangsters were afraid of these guys because they were so ruthless. Is that kind of how it starts? Like at least for me, when I'm I'm going through it, I'm looking at it going, okay, this is like another level of of I guess deviant behavior. 
Yeah, I mean, it was the sort of ruthlessness which was in calculated in them really early. I mean, they all sort of um, came of age in the crack epidemic in New York, sort of in the late sort of, it went from like the late sort of 1980s um, to the mid sort of 1990s or so. So they sort of came of age in that time. And crack sort of basically completely rewrote like the drug game. Um, Up until that time, it had been heroin. um, And that was run like by the mafia. And it was it was highly sort of organized and um, centralized. But with crack, um, you had this whole sort of um, democratization of the drug game where any corner crew could have the money, you know, to be able to buy a key of coke and to turn it into crack. Um, So all of a sudden you had multiple crews all around the Bronx um, who realized that because they can make a fortune overnight um, and, you know, it was so fast. I mean, it sort of broke over. And it, and it changed. York, really. Right. And, and you, as you mentioned the heroin into crack transition, I never really understood that. But you describe it as, as like a really like a, a very swift transition just because of how the neighborhoods like these these towns became kind of ghost towns with the crack epidemic, whereas like the heroin part of it seemed to be. I don't know. I mean, it sounds odd to say, but like a more peaceful neighborhood. And that kids were outside and stuff, where as soon as crack took over, it, no, everybody was afraid to go out. Yeah, I mean, like with heroin, you know, I mean, the high is a lot kind of longer. Um, people tend to sort of nod off, you know, like they go to sleep. But with um, crack, I mean, the high is really, really short. You get very agitated if you can't have any more and you start roaming around um, trying to get another hit. But the other thing, too, is that because you've got these smaller crews um, like who are making all their sort of money, I mean, the violence um, started really early on because people are then competing over um, corners and blocks um, which they want to control. So when you look at the housing projects of the Bronx, you know, they're very, very high so density mm-hmm. um so like you have a lot of addicts in one block so that's then worth a huge amount of money like if you control all the drugs on that block um that can easily turn into millions of dollars so these very sort of young guys you know born in these very poor marginalized communities realize that they could almost be sort of millionaires overnight um you know many of them had no money. I mean, it's like because you referenced that first passage about pipe. I mean, that was an indication of the poverty that he was sort of born into. And on that same day, because he does his first shooting, because there's money involved. Um, and that then drove this uh, relentless cycle of money and violence, you know, which got worse and worse over the years. I looked at, at some of the, the murder stats as far as the you know police side of the story developed in that in 1990, I think that's the worst year. It, it, was, it was 2,245 murders in New York City. Mm. So to compare that to 2007, the last year we have full stats, I, I believe it's under 300 people. Yeah, so, exactly. So 
as you explain in the book, there was a real issue with, with newer feds, you know, college grads, not a lot of street sense as far as how to bust up crime. And then you have O'Malley, who's a detective, and then he's basically like brought in by the feds. And there had always been what there had always been this issue with street crimes that weren't glamorous and then mafia crimes, right? So can you explain a little bit and how hard it was to get the feds invested in this and wanting to try to figure out a way to clean up Soundview? Yeah, I mean, at that time, uh, the feds were like wholly interested in the mafia, like, because that's where the glamour was. Um, that's where you got the front sort of page of the newspaper. So all the feds like were going after all the mafia stuff, like so Sammy the Bull and all these other things. But the reality was at that time in New York is that it was, you know, street crews like Sex, Money, Murder who were responsible for the massive murder rate in New York. I mean, it's not the mafia. I mean, the mafia do, you know, very small targeted murders and there's a reason like behind it. Sex, Money, Murder really didn't care. Um, and it was about respect as well as sort of money so they were sort of murder really at the drop of a hat and there were hundreds of other um crews at that time who were doing exactly the same thing so the murder rate in new york was all attributable to these gangs now so with the feds so focusing on the mafia um no one was really looking at this um and o'malley at the time, like many of the NYPD guys, knew exactly who was um, so doing all the murders in the Bronx, who was responsible, but they couldn't get anyone to talk because uh, in these sort of neighborhoods like Soundview, you know, there's a complete code of silence. Um, everyone's scared of speaking out because of, uh, you know, the very real fear of retribution. So it was a very closed circle very hard to so penetrate and the feds were so focused on the mafia anyway um like so nothing was happening and like the bodies were sort of piling up every year it was just getting worse and worse um but there was a breakthrough um when o'malley uh started sort of working on a case um called the cowboys who were like a sort of mafia outfit who had partnered um, with a street crew called The Crew, and uh, Mali sort of worked on that case. They successfully um, caught everyone, but it opened up a whole new landscape into who was to, to doing all these murders because they got these guys to flip. Um, so then Mali started like working with the feds and using that enormous power that the feds have, but part partnering up with uh, local detectives in places like the Bronx. And it was the NYPD because he knew who was doing the murders. So once they started to break in, um, you know, they started to have a lot of success. Can you uh, explain just how, as you were referencing Pipe, you know, 11 years old that day and then, shooting at somebody the first time and mm. Peter pistol Pete mentions, you know what it feels like to kill somebody uh, that got really heavy in the book. And, and what was maybe the scariest 
explanation of of what these guys were telling you about what it's like to go after somebody? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, the whole culture then, I mean, around sex, money, murder was, uh, you know, once you so put the hit on somebody, I mean, you don't stop. So it becomes an obsessive thing that because you're going to kill them no matter what. So I think with Pipe, I mean, it was particularly startling to me that Pistol Pete had ordered him to carry out his first shooting at the age of 11. Um, and then that starts in these guys, this young, you know, this cycle of violence, and then it becomes normal. And, you know, we've got this so going on now in Chicago and so Baltimore and other places. Um, but with Pipe, I mean, it's, you know, uh, for example, there was a disrespect in a um, skating ring between another um, so drug gang and, and immediately, you know, because the beef started and sex, money, murder, I think, killed three of them over the course of eight or nine months and it just did not stop. You know, there's no way to stop this sort of so cycle of killing like once it gets started. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is, is maybe my favorite part of the book because as I'm reading it and I, you know, some of you didn't grow up around this and let's face it, just as a white guy uh, with different issues with race, I have, um, I, I don't know, there's just times where I'll be like, okay, I feel this way and then I go, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm wrong, maybe now I feel this way and then I go, wait a minute, am I am I doing too much of this? And then I'm, you know, so I'm, I'm very conflicted, especially in the last couple of years, more and more about race and just trying to make sure I have an open mind about everything. But there is a really easy path to listening to these stories, reading these chapters, and going, okay, these kids are terrible. And then there's another part of you that goes, you know, the infrastructure of this city, it was basically cut off from everything else, and it was destined to fail. And then you have O'Malley explaining, okay, fine, you know, everybody wants to give everybody a hug here and blame everybody else, but you run up a tower in a stairwell wondering if you're going to get killed, and then you let me know how to do my job. How were you able to kind of stay out of this politically? Like you don't really have a lean. You're not you're not telling us to feel a certain way other than to just consume the story. How are you able to do that? Because I always think that's really hard and I think you were great at it. Well, thank you. I mean, I just I think that your sort of guiding light here is to stay with the truth. So to sort of spend a you know, and that sounds really simple, but it's not, you know, like you you have to keep following exactly what happened so don't try to sort of cast things in any like type of light so you know so this is why the book took um five sort of years of research um because you go down a lot of sort of rabbit holes and other things but through that you start to understand exactly how this works and the and the issue with race and you know um the big sort of problem i think with this stuff is the racism here is the fact that you know the murders of these young to black and to brown guys is completely ignored in the media um i mean it's a massive issue here here in america um and it's simply not not addressed i mean um there was a story in the book i told um like about a white guy who came up to new york i think for uh tennis tournament and he was sort of murdered in a 
robbery on the subway. And um, that was a massive deal. You know, the NYPD scrambled. They put all the top uh, detectives on it, um, got massive amounts of airplay. They caught the murderers, I think, in 24 hours. But if you're sort of talking about these murders in the Bronx, which are almost back then, it was like a daily occurrence. I mean, every single day, um, code of silence, no one really wants to speak about it. And it happens in these sort of neighborhoods out of Manhattan where people really don't go. So it's ignored. So it takes people like O'Malley to work, you know, incredibly hard and to really fight upstream um, to get the murderers off the street and I mean that's the key here you know you have to get the ringleaders off the street and the shooters off the street and then you can sort of you know uh, start to do things in the neighborhood to help so people because of economic opportunity and other things like that. I know you spent years doing this man did you ever were you ever scared? Yeah I mean it's uh, you know I mean it's a scary world I mean it's uh it, it, you know, like it's a very closed world. And for guys who are sort of born and raised in it, um, violence is the currency. Um, anger is the currency. You know, being uh, willing to uh, carry out sort of violence at the drop of a hat, um, you know, is is a useful skill because that's the thing uh, in a gang that will keep you safe is your reputation on the street. Um, so, you know, when I'm sort of hanging out with these guys, um, particularly Shug, you know, um, has a reputation as being a very violent dude with a very quick temper. And I saw, you know, many times how it could go from zero to a hundred miles an hour in no time at all, you know, with, with, with consequences, you know. Well, hey, man, I can't tell you enough. Uh, you know how I feel about the book. I appreciate the time that you've given me, and I let's give away some copies. So I know we'll do this. Uh, we're going to set up our producer with your publicist, and then for listeners, if you just retweet, we'll use the hashtag. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that work's going to be thrilled if I do a sex money murder hashtag. So we're going to probably not do that. Um, hmm. <laughs> let's do, let's do Jonathan Green. All right. So we'll use your name. That's the, that'll be the hashtag. And then we can give out, we'll send out books to those guys. So thanks so much for your time, man. And, and really congrats to you on a great piece. Thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate it.